So how'd it go last week? Good. I heard good things. I'm grateful for John and his willingness to step in and keep us going. And that keeps us from being behind. And so we'll dive in to chapter 16. We want to think tonight about the set of bold judgments. You recall that there have been a series of judgments throughout the Revelation. Um, we've talked about the seven seals and, and we've talked about the seven trumpets and now we come to the seven bowls. And if you've paid attention along the way and gained understanding and perhaps studied the chart uh, that I handed out a while back, then you've realized that the seven seal judgments pertain largely to the ordinary story of human history, particularly those first four seals. They talk about what life is like in a fallen world where the kingdom mission of God is advancing and where warfare and bloodshed occur and where life is often marked by economic downturn and where we face the reality of death. We saw in the breaking of the fifth seal in chapter 6 how there were souls that were beneath the altar of God and they cried out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? And you remember that they were clothed in white robes and told to be at rest, to wait just a little longer, not much longer, for the day would come when their number was complete and then God would avenge their blood. That's important to us as we'll see in chapter 16 tonight, because we are coming to the point where their number is complete and their blood is to be avenged at the end of days. And we talked about the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and you remember there how these seven trumpets, they occur as the end of days is approaching. This is, this is not the ordinary course of human history. This is something that is launching us toward the end of days and bringing us to the time when God's people are, are experiencing great persecution and hardship at the hands of the wicked, those who have taken the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And you remember that as the end of days approaches, there, there's great trouble like, like what we've never seen before. And it's marked by all sorts of natural disasters and economic downturn. And, and there's even great destruction. A third of the earth experiences the sting of a plague of demonic horses. And a third of the earth experiences death at this demonic horde that comes forward from the abyss. These things are meant to turn the hearts of the wicked, to pierce and penetrate those who have stony hearts in unbelief. And yet what we see at the end of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, is that those who are experiencing these hardships, those who are left when a third of the earth has been destroyed, they are not, they are not caused to repent. They are not convicted by this outpouring of judgment instead they become recalcitrant. They are hardened in their hearts against God. And they will not give up their idols. They continue on in their sexual immorality. They love the things of earth more than they love the things of God. We point this out because both of these sets of plagues, the, uh, these judgments, the seals and the trumpets, they ended by flinging us forward to the end of days. 
Oh, they told us about life in a fallen world and they told us about what it would be like as we approached the great day of the Lord. But then they ended the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet. They ended by taking us forward to the end of human history, the great and dreadful and terrible day of the Lord. And they showed us what it was like for on that day when the day of the Lord comes, the unbelieving world will be found left underneath the wrath of God poured out, looking for cover when God and the Lamb judge the earth. And on that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the kingdom of this world will be consumed by the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. Both of those things, both of those flash-forwards to the end of human history occurred so that we would know for sure that we have a foundation for hope. See, the reality is we live in a world that is often devoid of hope. We live in a world that is broken and battered and barraged by every sort of evil and wickedness and sin. And sometimes we deserve the brokenness that we experience. We can look at our lives, our failures, our personal immorality, our sins, and we can say, Lord, I deserve what I've gotten in this life. But there are so many times, brothers and sisters... When we look at the horrors of life in this world, the trouble that we experience personally or the pain that our friends or our family endure, and we wonder, is there any justice? God, are you even present in the middle of this tragedy? How, God, are we to hope in the face of such difficulty? This morning, your staff gathered and prayed for the needs of the church as we do every week. I was so touched. I shared with them this morning. Sometimes I look at the list of the needs in our congregation's life and I am overwhelmed by the great pain and suffering that some of our people endure. And were I not able to turn these needs over to God, I would be crushed beneath the emotional weight of trying to bear them or understand them. Sometimes we wonder, is there any reason for hope? And so twice in pastoral approach, John throws us to the end of human history and he says, we can hope. There's a reason for us to rejoice. There's a cause for us to endure. John doesn't look into the eyes of his congregation and say, I know that you experience difficulty, but it's going to be okay. He doesn't look into the eyes of his people and say, I know that your body is failing, it's going to be okay. John looks at his people and says, you are pain racked, you are soul weary, you are barraged by persecution from the unbelieving world, and it is hellish in every way. But do not despair, because as bad as it is, one day it will be immensely glorious. God will overcome. So keep hoping. Twice John has taken us to the end of days just in a little glimpse of glory to say hope, persevere, be focused. In the middle of your trouble, But as we come to chapter 16, it is not a flash forward, it is a reality that we experience. Chapter 16 is no longer an anticipated future, it is a realized future. 
It is the hope that is actually coming to pass as the sovereign Lord pours out wrath upon those who dwell on the earth. Let's read together chapter 16. John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was? For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Every disciple of Jesus is called to persevere in the face of the woes of this world. Whether they are the ordinary troubles of life that result from the fall or the painful rejection of unbelievers hostile to God and his people, 
So John has often taken us to the end of human history to tell us to persevere, to show us that we do indeed have a reason to return to our first love, as the church at Ephesus was called to do. Or like the church at Smyrna, we have a reason to be faithful unto death. Or like the church at Pergamum, a reason to cease the tolerant and syncretistic ways of our man-made religion. Or like the church at Thyatira, to give up the deep things of Satan and hold fast to the things of God. And like the church at Sardis, we indeed have a reason to wake up and strengthen what remains. We should be like the church at Philadelphia with a real reason to walk through the open door that is set before us. And if, like the church at Laodicea, we find that we are lukewarm, then we have reason to purchase refined gold and white raiment and salve for our eyes. The reason is that the Lamb will overcome. We must persevere in our faith, and we can, John reminds us, because history will come to its rightful end one day. And when it does, the wicked will be left without cover beneath the reign of God's wrath, and the righteous will be covered as they sing the victory, for the Lamb has overcome. It's this application of future hope in the midst of present difficulty that is the reason John has often thrown us to the end of days and then brought us back to the story of the here and now. But as we come to the return of the end of days in chapter 16, we are no longer contemplating the implications of a future hope, but are invited to consider the realities of a hope realized. In chapter 10, in verse 7, we were told that when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The seventh trumpet was sounded in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And then we saw a great interlude in chapters 12 through 14, where we gained understanding about the systems that are at work in this world, why the church of God suffers and why the persecution of the church of God takes place and indeed how it takes place under the leadership of that false trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. But then in chapter 15 in verse 7, the seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God were introduced to be poured out in full measure. These bowls are the final iteration of God's wrath poured out at the end of the great tribulation just before the catching up of the saints and the coming of the Son of Man a final time. In chapter 16 and verse 1, John heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Given that in chapter 15 and verse 8, the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished, we should see this voice as being the voice of God Himself. Ordinarily, in Greek, the adjective follows the noun. Now, in our English translation, we put the adjective before the noun because that's the way we speak. But in Greek, ordinarily, the adjective follows the noun, as it does in many other languages in our world. We wouldn't have in Greek a 
black car, we would have a car black. That's the way it's written. So when the Greek authors want to communicate something strongly, when they want to underscore and embold something that is descriptive, they put the adjective first. That's what happens in chapter 16 and verse 1. The adjective about this voice comes first. It is a loud voice, not just in English, but in Greek. John is saying, pay attention. This voice is commanding. This voice is instructive. This voice is compelling. No one could escape the volume of this voice. Not me, the prophet, and not the angels who do his bidding. This is a voice that commands And it commands that his hour has come. That there are seven bowls of God's wrath underscores the completeness or wholeness of this judgment of God. That there were seven seals and seven trumpets and now seven bowls. A trinity of sevens also underscores the completeness. But you recall that the seven seals dealt with a fourth of the earth. And the seven trumpets a third of the earth. And now we come to the seven bowls which take into their effect the entirety of the earth, both the earth itself and those who dwell on it. So we shouldn't see, as some theologians do, that these are all the same judgments. Instead, we should understand that as human history progresses, God intensifies his outpouring of wrath upon the earth always, even in the outpouring of the seven bowls, always with the design to cause the unbelieving to repent. As we'll say at the end of the night, the reason, the reason that the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes is not because God has run out of mercy. It is because the unbelieving world has determined indefinitely to oppose God and the Lamb. So there's a fullness of wrath being poured out. We see that in the act of the first angel. In chapter 16 and verse 2, John says that the first angel poured out his bowl on the earth. From the outset of this set of judgments, it's clear that the object of God's final punishment are those who dwell on the earth. That's the way of talking about the unbelieving world. Those who've taken the mark of the beast. That the wrath is not just upon the earth, but upon the people of the earth is made clear by the nature of this punishment. This bowl contains a plague of harmful, painful boils or sores that came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Robert Mount sees here the irony that those who have taken the mark of the beast are now marked by the plague of God. We remember here the sixth Egyptian plague from Exodus 9, verses 9 to 11, where soot from the kiln was thrown into the air and brought boils breaking out in sores on both man and beast in all the land of Egypt. Just as the plague of boils was on the house of Egypt and not the house of Israel, the harmful and painful sores are on those who took the mark of the beast, the unbelievers, and not on those who are sealed with the Spirit of God. The believers. And one of the things that we should remember here is that there are still believers in the world at this time as we approach the end of days, but not many. If you went back to chapter 11, verses 3 to 12, you remember 
that in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, God told John to take a measuring rod. Do you remember this? Take the measuring rod and measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. But John was told, don't measure the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. It is given over to the nations. And then John was told that the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, would trample the holy city for 1,260 days. That period of time, short, brief, three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, all ways of communicating an intense period of persecution and opposition from the unbelieving world toward the people of God. It goes back to the time of between the, between the Testaments, back to the second century B.C., the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. What John was saying there as he saw this vision is that God was going to seal his people. God was going to number his people, protect his people, build his people in. There was, there was no chance that God was going to lose those who belonged to him. And he was sealing and measuring and counting on his people before they face this last end of days period of judgment and persecution and hardship from the world that is unbelieving. And John told us in chapter 11, verses 3 to 12, that the witnesses would do their witnessing. The witnesses were the church. You remember that there were two witnesses who were two prophets, who were two lampstands, who were two olive trees. The witnesses are the whole people of God, and the whole people of God bear an honorable and faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. But then John says, when the witnesses finish their witnessing, there comes forth from the abyss the beast. Now this beast from the abyss is also the beast from the sea. He is also the man of lawlessness. He is also the Antichrist. And he does his work in the abomination of desolation, in this act in which he sets himself up as a figure of power to be adored and worshipped by the whole people of earth who have not taken faith in the Lord Jesus but instead will be willing to take the mark of the beast himself. And what John described as the action when the witnesses finish their witnessing, when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has toward the end of days completed her mission, is that there will be an outpouring of persecution by the beast of the abyss, the Antichrist, that will result in the widespread destruction of the witnesses. The church will be so persecuted throughout the earth that it may as well be said, she is no more. And as we approach the end of days, it will be largely the reality that there are few Christians left in the world. But that doesn't mean there are none. And it doesn't mean that they have not endured persecution and judgment and difficulty at the hands of unbelievers. Indeed, they have. But as we approach the end of days and God's full undiluted wrath is poured out upon the unbelieving world, just as he sheltered the Israelites in the land of Egypt, he will shelter the church in the land of Babylon. Don't miss the reason for the judgment of the unbelievers. They are caused to suffer because they have worshipped the beast. They are idolaters. As idolaters, they are complicit in the torture and torment of the saints of God. So now God inflicts torment and torture on them. 
There are a number of theologians who write about this plague particularly, but other plagues generally, that perhaps given the apocalyptic nature of the language, these are not to be taken literally. Tom Schreiner is one of those. He points out that while the boils, the sores, this plague of great physical pain doesn't have to be taken literally, it does nevertheless mean that those who turn away from the true and living God will experience agony because they've refused the one who offers life. That might be true. Surely we've seen in the study of the apocalyptic language that John often employs symbolism, figurative language. But I think we're also to remember that there was a real plague inflicted on the house of Egypt. So I don't think we have to look at this and see this as figurative. I think you can look at this and say, this might actually be literal. God himself might actually inflict upon all the unbelieving world painful boils and sores. In fact, the words for harmful and painful, they're stronger than that. That's actually a mild translation. The words for harmful and painful, they mean evil and bad and troubling. This is the worst kind of physical turmoil a person could endure. And it will come at the hand of God Almighty on those who have failed to worship him, but if instead worship the God of this world. In verse 3, you see the second plague. It says there that the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. As the second bowl is poured out, John envisions a plague that alludes to the second trumpet judgment, chapter 8, verses 8 to 9, and the first Egyptian plague, Exodus 7, 14 to 25. In Exodus 7, in verse 14, God tells Moses about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. In fact, God gives Moses instruction ahead of time. He says, Moses... You're going to go and say these things to him. He's not going to respond to you because his heart's already hard. Then this is what you're going to do. You're going to put your staff in the water and it'll turn to blood. What Moses was commanded in chapter 7 of Exodus in verse 16, he was commanded to go to Pharaoh and say, let the people of God go and serve the Lord in the wilderness, in the desert place. In other words, Moses was saying... To Pharaoh, God wants his people to feast. He wants his people to worship. He wants his people to be consecrated in adoration of him. Just let them go and do that. But of course, Pharaoh is hard in his heart. Eugene Peterson, who I've quoted often, says that Moses' task was to lead his people in worship. Pharaoh's sin was that he prevented them The judgment plagues are visited over this issue and this issue alone. And then Peterson says, The greatest evil that people of faith face from outside is the obstruction of worship. The greatest evil that they face from inside is the subversion of worship. This is what we have most to fear. This is what St. John gives continuous attention to. And it is on this evil that the judgments are visited. Remind yourself that the beast is not opposed to worship. He's merely opposed to the worship of the lamb. 
Oh, the beast wants worship. The beast wants worship drawn to him and to the dragon that he serves. The beast wants all the attention, all the adoration, all the worship. So much so that he will employ the beast of the earth, the false prophet, to to increase his fame and his renown in the world. You remember that the false prophet will step forward and he will be so charismatic and so winsome that he causes all the people of earth to create their own image, to set up an idolatrous place of worship and give homage to the beast. The world will be worshiping, but worshiping the false God, not the true and living God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That matters. It matters, brothers and sisters, because we live in a world that often diminishes the role of worship. Some of you have been at Elkdale for Years and years and years. Some of you have been in other places and God has brought you here. But I think all of us know that one of the great temptations of the life of the local church is to see that our, our way of being winsome in the world is to draw attention through events, put on a sideshow, be a spectacle, host an event, give an experience, create an opportunity. Something high and grand and mighty and attractive. So great is the pull of these sorts of events and activities and experiences in the life of the local church that for some churches that is all they give their attention to. It's one event after another event after another event. And so the congregation experiences some sort of roller coaster, some sort of whiplash in which they are continually lifted up only to be dropped down. Only in their experience the height is the event and the depth is the ordinary experience of worship. One of the things that I've sought to do in eight years of pastoral ministry is to bring a leveled rhythm to the life of the churches that I've served. They say that while experiences and events and opportunities to engage the outside community are well and good, the height of our life together is what we do every Sunday morning when we gather There is no higher experience for the life of the people of God than to assemble together and around the word and around the table and to give glory and honor to the God who has saved us by grace. One of the things that we must get into the DNA of our people is the importance of the gathering. It doesn't matter if you're a first person, first service person or a second service person. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the assembly of the people of God to read and pray and preach and sing and give to occasionally come together with the sacrament of bread and cup and to witness the profession of faith in the waters of baptism. These are the pinnacles of our experience. And when they occur week by week by week by week, they give rhythm and regulation to our lives. They help us to stop experiencing the whiplash of highs and lows. And instead, they set our course steady and stable as we pursue the living God. I think John knew about this. 
I think even in the first century as the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis and Philadelphia, I think even in the first century these churches that John gave himself to and loved and cared for, I think they experienced the pull and tug of this wayward, wicked world. And John had to say, listen, what matters is your devotion to God. What matters is your worship of God. Don't forsake this. Don't give yourself over to the world. Don't, don't bring in the practices of evil and think they can co-mingle with the practices of the righteous. And here in chapter 16, John says, Church, look at what happens to those who worship the God of this world. Those who are idolaters go down to their death and destruction. Indeed, John says that the second angel pours out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The unbelieving world is looking for relief from the painful sores that cover their bodies and now they're beset by a stench so great that there is no relief to be found. The blood is like that of a corpse, John says, which is to say that it is cold and coagulated. The sea, once filled with life and livelihood, is now marked by death and destruction. There was a warning of this. When the second trumpet was sounded, a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the ships were destroyed. People should have listened. They should have taken heed. They should have repented. They should have given up their idolatrous ways. They should have forsaken their sexual immorality. They should have worshipped God and the Lamb, but they didn't. John told us there they did not repent of the work of their hands. They didn't give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their thefts or their sexual immorality. This recalcitrance would prove impenetrable to anything but the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The problem is when God breaks through this time, it will not purify them, it will pulverize them. The third bowl is seen in verses 4 through 7. Well, really just in verse 4, it says there that the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Oh, it was bad enough that the sea turned to blood. But now, as we saw with the third trumpet, the fresh water is contaminated as well. The entirety of the fresh water supply of earth is turned to blood. Schreiner says that water is the source of life, and thus God is eradicating in judgment what is vital for life. Can you sense how difficult life is becoming for those who dwell on the earth? These unbelievers are experiencing great physical pain personally even as they are immersed in an environmental crisis the likes of which the world has never seen that is compounded by the crashing of the shipping and seafood industries. It is a punishment that increases and never ceases. And as we see the destruction that is coming on this earth, it's not hard for us to now see why there's a need for a new heaven and a new earth. John writes in verse 5 of the angel in charge of the waters. That's not a biblical metaphor, but it does allude to the, to the Jewish world that John writes in. 
where they thought that there were angels that controlled earth and wind and fire. I mean, not the music group from the 70s, just the real things. You knew I couldn't let that slide. George Eldon Ladd writes that the voice of this angel proclaims the justice of God's judgments upon those who shed the blood of those who were loyal to God. The judgment of those who have martyred the saints is suited to the evil they have done. This is only what men deserve, they say in verse 6. There's a flashback in this word of verses 5 and 6 to the song of the conquering, of the overcoming, the saints. In chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, when they sang the song of Moses and they sang the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's the same sentiment from the angel in charge of the waters. The angel makes clear that what the saints have already made clear, God's divine punishment is in keeping with his character. He is just in all his ways. His wrath has every bit as much a place in his reign over the world as does his mercy. He has been patient and long-suffering and slow to anger, but he will not, in the words of Exodus 34, clear the guilty. Robert Mounts writes that the judgment of God is neither vengeful nor capricious. It is an expression of his just and righteous nature. All caricatures of God that ignore his intense hatred of sin reveal more about man than they do about God. In a moral universe, God must of necessity oppose evil. In chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, we saw the breaking of the fifth seal and souls beneath the altar of God crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now in chapter 16 and verse 7, we see that God has indeed heard their cries. For the altar itself speaks, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Vindication has come. God is avenging their blood. The fourth bowl in verses 8 to 9 is poured out and it allows the sun to scorch people with fire. While those who dwell on the earth experience dynamic and disastrous natural phenomena in the last days, we must understand that God is ordering these occurrences for his purposes. That's the case here in the outpouring of the fourth bowl. While the sun always has the potential to burn us, it does not take, if we do not take shelter, John envisions a day when God will order the sun to work such that those who have not repented of their sins are scorched or burned with fire. Though this plague comes just on the edge of the destruction of civilization and damnation of the Antichrist and the false prophet at the battle of Armageddon, even here there is in the heart of God mercy and grace held out should the unbelievers turn to him in faith. But John writes that they did not repent and give him glory, but instead cursed the name of God. So convinced are those who dwell on the earth of the righteousness of their own cause, 
that they think God capricious and unjust in his use of power to condemn. So rather than blessing his name in repentance and belief, they curse him and go down to their death. I don't think you can read this chapter and not think about Job. You remember. Job lost all of his land, all of his buildings, all of his livestock, all of his sons and daughters. And then that lying serpent had the audacity to look into the face of Almighty God and say, yeah, he still blesses you because you won't do anything to him. As though the loss of his livelihood and his children were not enough. And so without taking Job's life, there was great horrible pain inflicted upon his person So great the boils and sores upon his body that scriptures tell us that Job took shards of pottery to scrape himself in an effort to get relief. And Job's wife, always condemned, though probably not as justly as we think, in an effort to give her husband some sense of relief, said, Job, why don't you curse God and die? And Job looked into the eyes of his wife and he asked the question that mankind in devotion to God has been asking for thousands of years since. Is it right to accept the blessing of God and turn away the evil? And so he remained a righteous man. Pain and horrible punishment have been inflicted upon the unbelieving. And at the heart of the God who orders their judgment is a hunger for them to turn to him in faith. They know that he is real. They would not curse him if they did not. But knowing his reality... They curse his name and go down to their death. There's a word there for the people of God. To remember. To remember the beauty of our Savior. To remember the wonder of his grace. And to remember that our sufferings in this life are but temporary trials. They will not last forever. God forbid that like the unbelieving, we should curse his name in the middle of our sufferings. The fifth bowl pours out upon the throne of the beast, John says, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The ninth plague of Egypt in Exodus 10, 21 to 29, and the fourth trumpet in Revelation 8, 12 to 13 brought similar experiences. But unlike that trumpet that diminished a third of the light of earth, sun, moon, and stars, the fifth bowl plunges the world into darkness. The bowl is poured out specifically upon the throne of the beast. That's the seed of his power or his authority. But it has worldwide implications, as John says, Its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
Remember that the kingdom of the beast is not one city. It's not one location. It is the entire world that has been taken in under his power. The world is plunged into darkness. And in the midst of this darkness, the personal suffering of unbelievers who have been boiled, covered, and burnt intensifies, eliciting a continued chorus of curses. The people are suffering greatly such that they gnaw their tongues in anguish. But when they stop biting their tongue, it's not to beg for mercy. It's not to admit guilt. It is to curse the God of heaven. The days are coming to their end, not because God has run out of mercy, but because the people of earth have sealed their position. To the end, God would welcome them to turn to Him in faith. And if they would, He holds the power to restore and renew their lives in Him. But they will not. They have chosen the beast. And they will follow Him first to battle and then to eternal banishment. In verses 12 through 16, we see the sixth bowl. It says there that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now we're getting somewhere. You've been waiting, haven't you? You wondered when we were going to get to the end. Well, my goodness, we've gotten there. This plague is different, isn't it? It's not an outpouring of wrath. It's a preparation for battle. John talks about the drying up of the Euphrates, there's a pathway made in the midst of the water. We have seen pathways made in the midst of water before. We think about a path made across the Red Sea so the children of Israel might flee from the hand of the Egyptians. We saw the drying up of the River Jordan as the people of God passed over into the land of promise. But this time the water isn't drying up as a pathway for the righteous but for the wicked. God is in control. We have seen God order the wicked before, haven't we? God has raised up nations and caused them to fall. We remember how God raised up the Assyrians to punish His people Israel and God raised up the Babylonians to punish His people Judah. But then we saw how God destroyed the Babylonians because they dared to say that it was their own power that had made them strong and He raised up the Medo-Persians to destroy the Babylonians and then to bring His people back into the land of promise at the appointed hour. Never forget that God is in charge of the nations. It's by his hand that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Oh, we may bemoan the appointment of a president, but let us remember that God is in control even of that. And so God opens the great river Euphrates to allow the kings of the east to march and assemble for war. 
This is a great demonstration. It's the alignment of all the forces of evil to do battle with God and the Lamb. It's not the last battle. There is one battle that will come when the dragon, Satan himself, will be consumed and destroyed. But that's to come. For now, we think about this battle that destroys the beast and the false prophet. John wants us to understand that there is indeed a false trinity. He makes that abundantly clear here. He says that he saw, this is verse 13, he saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Well, they weren't frogs. They were just like frogs. In the Hebrew world, frogs were unclean. But he said these unclean frog-like beings were demonic spirits and they emanated, they came forth from the demonic false, false trinity. The dragon is likened to the father in a false way. The beast, this is the beast of the abyss, this is the beast of the sea, this is the antichrist, this is the man of lawlessness, is a false portrait of Christ the Son and the false prophet first introduced as that phrase here is akin to the beast of the earth. And he plays the role of a false spirit. And from this false trinity comes forth a demonic power sent out into the world to draw not just the kings of the east, but to draw kings from around the world into this battle of Armageddon. Before this battle rages, Jesus takes a moment to speak to his people. Remember that what Jesus says here in verse number 15 is a word not just to those believers who are living at the end of days who have managed to survive the persecution of the God of this world, but he's also speaking to the believers in John's day. Those who are waiting for this day to come, who are longing for hope, who are praying for deliverance, who are begging for the vengeance of God to come. He says to them, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I won't ask for any commentary. But have you ever wondered what would happen if an emergency happened in the middle of the night? Would you find yourself running and gunning, trying to find the keys and the phone and the shoes and your shirt, wondering if you could get out of the house relatively presentable in the 30 seconds that you've got? I think about that often in my line of work. I try to be prepared. Though Mary would tell you, but the phone and keys are never where they're supposed to be. So it would take me far longer than I think it would. Jesus tells his people, I'm coming. But it will be quick and swift. You must be ready. In other words, Jesus is saying to his people, what you've been longing for, is a date, a time. I'm not going to give you one. What I want is for you to be watchful and waiting. Not in sloth, 
or stupor. Not spending your time on things that have no earthly, eternal value. But even as you do my work in the world, keep an eye toward the east. I'm coming. Do you have an eye toward the east? Are you watchful? Do you expect that God will indeed come again for His own? In the midst of all the horrors and tragedies and darkness and difficulties of a broken, fallen world, do you recall the precious promise of the Lord that even when the days are evil, we can have hope? Jesus says in verse 16, they assembled them, that's the kings of the east and the kings of the world, at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's a place where battle has been done before, though interestingly, the word is Mount Megiddo. That's what Armageddon means, Mount Megiddo. And if you know anything about the geography of the Middle East, Megiddo is not a mountain, it's a plain, it's a valley place. John is signaling something. He's trying to get your attention. He's saying to a people that would have known their territory well, don't see this as literal. See it as figurative. I'm trying to signal something. This is going to be an epic battle, not just a battle in an actual physical place. It's a battle that will consume and take in the entirety of the world. Then we see the seventh bowl quickly. Poured out his, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as it had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. We'll return here next week, but might I just mention two things before we go. One, when the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes this world in which we dwell will experience great torment. There will be environmental destruction like you have never seen. The prophets told us that this would happen and now John is telling us this will happen. You wonder why will the old heaven and the old earth pass away and a new heaven and a new earth come? It is because this kind of destructive judgment will bring an end to this broken world that we live in. But then just notice before we go, verse 21, that as God pours out this last plague that is expounded in chapter 17 and 18, which is why we'll return here next week, as God pours out this last plague, even this is not enough to turn the hearts of men. They continue to curse God because the plague is so severe. Father, we pray that as we consider the outpouring of judgment and wrath and destruction upon the earth, we would take no pleasure in these things. 
They are a cause for hope. They are a reminder to us of your sovereign control over this world that you've created for your own good glory and pleasure. But they are not a cause for rejoicing. Indeed, this will mean the destruction of untold millions who were created in the image of God, but who have chosen to curse your name. And so, God, I pray that we would take this for what it is given to be, a call to be watchful and wakeful, a call to be mindful of your power that will one day bring an end to all of our foes, a call to hope in the God who will be victorious and cause his saints to be as well. And may it also, God, be a warning That in the midst of trouble and trial in this life, our place is not to curse the God who blesses and curses, who gives good and bad, but instead to trust you because you give and you take away, but the name of the Lord is to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.